<laughs> I want to bring a sermon entitled God's Satisfaction from Romans 3, 24 through 26. This is the fourth Sunday that we have been in this great paragraph together. And the truth is that we could spend many more weeks looking at the truth contained in this short paragraph. It's not an understatement to say that if someone does not understand and believe these truths, then they cannot be strong in their faith. As a matter of fact, if someone knows these truths, in other words, they've been taught these things, and then they deny them, they cannot be a Christian. Now that's an important distinction, those two sentences together. Because there are plenty of people who are Christians who do not understand this paragraph. What I said in the second sentence is also true. If you've had these things taught to you clearly, and you then deny them, you're not a believer. This is therefore one of the most crucial texts in the whole of the Scripture. And this morning, we find ourselves in the heart of this very paragraph. The deepest part of the deep mine shaft where we will mine the precious gold of salvation. So let's read this paragraph together, beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness or the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show the righteousness of God at this present time. So that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father... We come before you now asking that you would be with us in your spirit, teaching and training us righteousness. Father, this is your great concern, that we would be made righteous. And you are doing that work, you have done that work, and you will complete that work, which brings us before you righteous. Thank you, God, that this work is not dependent on me. Not dependent on anyone here. But this work fully depends on you and your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the sealing and work of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is yours. And you have given it to us as a gift and so we praise you. Now, teach us these things from your word, by your Spirit, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. One of the great storylines of the Bible is the work of God to redeem his people. He's redeeming us from our slavery to sin and death and Satan. As we've already seen in this text from Romans, the theme of mankind since the fall of sin in the garden could be summed up with the words of Frank Sinatra. And some of you would know these words by Elvis Presley. When they sang together, and now the end is here. And so I face that final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more I did I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? 
If not himself, then he has not. Not to say the things that truly he truly feels, and not the words of someone who kneels. Let the record show, I took all the blows and did it. What? He had no idea, I don't think, that he was basically giving an exposition of Romans 1.18 through 3.20. That may make a great hit for a crooner or an old and aged Elvis on the stage in Las Vegas. But it's a sad truth for a man to come to the end of his life and say, my greatest accomplishment is that I did everything my way. That song is the anthem of every human who has ever lived from Adam until today except for one human. We come from the womb demanding we get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We want glory for ourselves and not the glory of God. And one of the great storylines of the Bible is how our great and glorious God brings us back to himself by redeeming us from sin. You see, the greatest story ever told is that God did it his way. He didn't do it our way. Let's look at this text together, starting in verse 24 specifically. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Last week, we really ended by talking about God justifying us freely by grace. But it's essential for us to know that while we receive justification... Justification, remember, is the declaration of God, the declaration of God that gives us right standing before God. It's a legal and forensic declaration of God. It's a legal declaration over those who have faith in Jesus. The accepting of a sinner based solely on the basis of faith in someone else. That's what justification is. God declares that we are counted righteous, you just sang about it, on the grounds of another person's work. And that work is Jesus Christ's work. It's a free gift from God, but the gift costs God tremendously. It doesn't cost us, but it costs Him. Listen to Paul as he continues in our text by saying that the gift was through, notice, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What did it cost him to redeem us? It cost him his son, Christ Jesus. Redemption is not simply deliverance. Now, some people would try to do this with the word. They would try to simplify it and say, it only means that we've been delivered. And while that's true, that's only part of the truth. That's part of what this word means. The result of redemption is that we are delivered from sin and death. That's the result. But it is not only that we are delivered. This word also teaches us how it happened. How were we delivered? Redemption, this word, means that a ransom has been paid. A ransom price has been delivered for our sin. The truth is that all of us are enslaved to sin. That that offends modern ears to hear that we're slaves. But here's the truth. Every human on the planet is a slave. You're either a slave to sin and Satan, and the result of that will be death, or you are a slave to God. No man is free in this life. You will either serve Satan or you will serve God, but you cannot live totally free. That's a lie. One of the great lies that's been told for centuries is that we're free. No, we're slaves. And the fact is that to be set free from our slavery to sin and the tyranny of Satan in death, a price had to be paid. And what he says in this text is that the free gift we receive by God's grace is through 
redemption in Christ Jesus. The ransom is paid. If we go back to the great story of redemption from the Old Testament, then we see the meaning of this word. God delivered his people Israel from their slavery in Egypt. How? This exodus from the bondage that they suffered for 430 years, this exodus cost Egypt every one of their firstborn sons. God did not set the people of Israel free without taking from Egypt a great price. And that price was their firstborn in their household. Every one of them paid that price that was not under the blood of the Lamb. God required the death of the firstborn of Egypt as a ransom payment to set His people free. And this is the meaning of our word redemption in this text. That to deliver us, God has paid Himself a ransom price. That great redemption in the Old Testament was only a shadow of the greater redemption which is available in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus is the ransom for those who are delivered from sin and death and Satan. Listen to what our, our Savior said about Himself in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give Himself a ransom for many. The word translated ransom in Mark is the root word of our word here in 324. It's the root word. The word means to be set free by the payment of a price. Freely we have received the grace of God, a gift, through the redemption. The deliverance price paid by Christ Jesus. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 1, 7, when he says, In Him, in Christ, we have redemption, there's our word, in His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The truth is that we have been justified freely by the grace of God only through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If Jesus did not do what He did on our behalf, then we would be hopelessly bound in our sin as slaves to the devil. But the text continues to explain this redemption. Look what he writes as a further explanation of what it cost to redeem us. Whom God, that's what the text says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. God the Father redeems us only by putting forward the propitiatory sacrifice of Jesus. Now, look at the text. This is not a work that's done by Christ by Himself. Our salvation, the redemption that we receive through Christ is planned and put forward by God the Father. And the Son carries it out and the Spirit applies it. Although it's not written in this text, it's in many others. The Spirit applies it to our lives. You see, we're saved by the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Banish from your mind any thought that God the Father had to be twisted in to saving us. Let me tell you what happens sometimes in your college classes maybe or as you're talking to a friend of yours that seems so smart, they begin to talk to you about a God of the Old Testament. And then they say about that God, well that was just some trial deity over there for the Hebrew people that was angry at everybody. He was wrathful against these people and he was destroying those people and he was commanding the death of a whole group of people over here and he was just full of anger that Old Testament God that's not our God they would say they would say our God's a God of love you see what you need to do is get out of the Old Testament forget all that that's just old ideas from a group of old Israelites who have no education and they're just a bunch of sheep herders over there in the desert let's don't listen to them no, we're, we're more sophisticated than that. We believe in a God of love. And that's the New Testament God. And His name is mainly Jesus. And so all we care about in our Bible is the red letters. And of those red letters, only a few. And it's the ones where Jesus said that God is love. That's all we care about. That's how we live. We don't pay attention to all that other stuff. We don't really need that. If you believe that, you'll go to hell. Listen to me clearly. If you believe that heap of garbage that I just spouted 
which is taught almost everywhere in the secular world, if they respect Christ at all, and it is taught in many so-called evangelical churches, you will go to hell. There is no two gods of the Bible. There is one. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament, who over 580 times is said to be wrathful against sin, is the same God that Jesus Christ came preaching the kingdom of heaven by declaring that God would send all those who were not saved to eternal damnation in hell. That's from the words of Jesus. Jesus spoke more about this eternal damnation than he did any other topic. Why? Because you must know that if you stand outside of him and you try to face God on your own work and merit, you will have no hope. The truth is, is that in redeeming us, God the Father put forward a solution to the problem of his wrath against our sin. And that solution is the propitiatory sacrifice of his son. Now, I want to I talk about it a little bit, okay? Over the past 150, 250 years, Christians have tried to work their way around this teaching because they don't like it. It offends them. It makes them, they're afraid, look dumb. It makes their God look petty. This is the kind of thing they say, we cannot accept a teaching that says that God has to have his wrath satisfied against sinners. We can't teach that kind of thing. They don't want to believe that because they don't want to believe that the God of love is also angry at sin and sinners. They don't want to believe that. But Grace Fellowship, this is exactly what this text and many others say. The Bible, from beginning to end, teaches that God is wrathful against sinners. And this wrath has to be dealt with because it cannot be ignored. And the glorious truth of the Bible is that it teaches that God has made a way for His wrath to be done away with for those who are in Christ. Don't you want to hear that news? Listen, some of you in here are lost. You came here today, you wandered in here by the invitation of a friend, a family member, or something like that. And now, right now, you're rethinking that decision. Because you're like, man, I came in here, I thought y'all were inviting me to a place where I would hear how to be a better person and how to help myself in this life. You don't understand, this preacher up there talking about the wrath of God needs to deal with my real problems. I'm having struggles in my marriage. I'm having struggles with my children. My boss doesn't like me. I need help. Well, you've come to the right place today. Because your greatest problem has nothing to do with your current condition in this life. It has everything to do with the condition you are in before a holy God. And you need to know that as you stand in your own self, His anger is against you. What are you going to do about it? I'm, I'm asking you, what are you going to do? You're going to try a little harder? You're going to do a little better? There's no hope in that. You already know. You tried to clean yourself up. You're like the drunk man or the drug addict who says, this is the last time I'll ever do it. I promise. And that lasts a few hours until they take another hit or they drink to the bottom of another bottle. You can't do it. You cannot set yourself free from the burden of the wrath of God. And every pagan religion and every Every single person that has any religious affection at all knows that this is true. They can't get around it. You see, every religion of this world is designed to give you a way to pay God back so he's not angry at you anymore. That's the whole condition of the other religions of the world. That's what separates us from them. We don't believe we can satisfy God on our own. You go talk to your friend who's a Muslim. And he'll tell you that he's being made right before God based on his effort to keep God's word. You go and talk to your spiritualist friend and they will tell you that they're doing everything they can to get karma on their side. Every single human is trying to appease 
the wrath of God. But here's the good news. You ready? If you're a Christian today, you don't have to appease the wrath of God. Because Jesus did it for you and for me. <laughs> this is good news. Let me just go a little further here. The Bible teaches us that God made a way for his wrath to be done away with for those who believe in Christ Jesus as Lord. What we are about to lay out now is the core of the good news. Propitiation is a word in our text that simply means satisfaction. That's what it means, satisfaction. When used in the Bible, it indicates these two things. First of all, the primary teaching of this word is that God's wrath is satisfied against the sin of sinners. As angry as he might, uh, as angry as this might make liberals, and as much as it might cause unbelievers to see God as some petty deity needing to be paid off with some repugnant idea of a sacrifice. The Bible teaches us that propitiation must be understood as the wrath satisfying sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. A second truth is equally there, though it's secondary. The meaning of propitiation also includes the idea of purification, being made pure. This word is the word used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew word for mercy seat. Leviticus 16 through 17 teach us the doctrine of the Day of Atonement, which was celebrated each year by the people of Israel. Let me quickly tell you about that, and you can make a note, Leviticus 16 and 17. You can go and read these words. Every year, God had made a way in the law for his people to make atonement for their sin. And what that meant was that there was a sacrifice given on their behalf so that their sin would be pushed forward another year. Each year, it was repeated. Every single year, from the time of its inception in the days of Moses and Aaron until Jesus' day, every single year on the same day of the year, sacrifice was given for the sins of the people. Here's what happened. Aaron, originally, Aaron, the high priest, gave a sacrifice of a bull for himself, for his own sins. And then he went into the holy place and he took on the garments of the priestly, priestly office. He washed himself in water and he put on the linen and he put on the outer coat. That outer coat had a shield on it which had the 12 tribes of Israel on its breastplate. Aaron took the goat which he had set apart and had been set apart by Lot and he took it in and he killed it before God having put his hands on it to transfer the sins of the people to the goat. He kills the goat, catches the blood. And then, out of sight of everyone, he went behind the veil of the temple, or the veil of the, of the tent of meeting, into what is known as the Holy of Holies. In there was an ark. That ark contained several things, but one of the things it contained was the law of God. The tablets that the law was written on. Over this altar... Listen to this, it's beautiful. Over this ark was a gold-plated seat. And the way that seat was made is that these cherubim angels were bowing down their wings and their face was turned toward the lid of the ark. What were they looking at? They were looking at the righteous law of God which had to be fulfilled. It had to be satisfied. These angels are looking at it. They're staring at it. And this formed what's known as the mercy seat. God would come down in a cloud over that mercy seat when Aaron the high priest or his descendants went in before God, having purified themselves with an offering of a bull, having washed themselves clean, put on the garments. They carried the bowl of the blood of that goat into the Holy of Holies. No one else was allowed to go. Israel was not allowed to go before God. No, they were represented by their high priest. He went in and this is what he did. You ready? He took his hand and he wiped the blood of that goat on the horns of that altar, the mercy seat. And then he took a hyssop 
and he slung the blood of that offering onto the mercy seat. This was so, listen, that God's wrath would be held at bay. It would be stopped for another year. What happened every year in September, our September, was that same ritual year after year after year. That's what's known as the Day of Atonement. God prescribed it in the law. It was done every year. So for generations, the people of Israel saw the high priest go once a year with blood of a goat into the Holy of Holies. He went behind a veil so no one could see him. And he sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And when the work is done in secret, when it's all finished, they, they knew that God accepted that sacrifice because the high priest returned to them alive. He took the blood and put it on the altar of the mercy seat so that the sins of the people were covered for another year. And it had to be done again and again and again. Doesn't that sound tiring to you? Doesn't that sound like there's got to be a better way? Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 9. I mean, this is a long quote, but just turn your ears on and listen to this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it's not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when Every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled it, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered in, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true, true things. Listen to this. But... To heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. We are redeemed, 
Not by the blood of bulls and goats. No one was ever redeemed by the blood of bulls and goats. The blood of the bulls and goats in the Old Testament was only a shadow of the great sacrifice that was given in our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and lived and died, He paid the price once and for all. He died to set us free, to redeem us, to pay the ransom for us through the satisfactory sacrifice of the atonement. That's what our text says. Grace Fellowship, God has put forward the once and for all wrath-satisfying sacrifice in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. We must never be ashamed of teaching that God's wrath had to be propitiated. You should never shy away from the fact that God is angry at sin and sinners. The truth is that our sin separated us from the righteous God, and we need a way back to Him. Listen to what John Stott said about this truth. This is one of my favorite quotes from Stott. Listen to this. It would be hard to exaggerate the difference between the pagan and the Christian view of propitiation. In the pagan perspective, human beings try to placate their bad-tempered deity with their own paltry offerings. According to the Christian revelation, God's own great love propitiated His own holy wrath through the gift of His own dear Son who took our place, bore our sin, died our death. Thus God Himself, listen to this, thus God Himself gave Himself to save us from himself. Did you hear that? God himself gave himself to save us from himself. That is good news. Stott said it this way too. I like this. It's pretty clever. The righteous God righteously Righteous is the unrighteous. That's a lot of righteousness, isn't it? And let me remind you, our text is full of the righteousness of God. It's mentioned over and over and over again in this text. And not just in this text, but the whole book of Romans is consumed with the fact that there is a righteous God who must be satisfied. And the only way He can be satisfied is that His law just like those angels were staring at the law, his law must be satisfied. And if we stop there and say his law must be satisfied, then listen to me, none of us has a chance. Because when you were conceived, you were conceived in your father Adam, a lawbreaker. Yes, we have one of our youngest, not the youngest, we've had another baby since her, but we got one of our youngest members of our congregation with us today from the Downey household. And she is some kind of beautiful. You should see her. And when you look at her, she is so beautiful. And she is so innocent looking to us. But before the eyes of God, she is a sinner. And she has to be made righteous. But she's not made righteous in her own work. She can only be made righteous if she has faith in Jesus Christ, who is the righteousness of God apart from the law. Though the law and the prophets bore witness to it, she will be saved only, listen to me, only by in faith taking her hand Spiritually, and placing it on the head of Jesus and bowing her head before God and saying, He's all I have. He's all I've got. I have no other foundation to stand on than the rock of Jesus Christ and His blood and His righteousness. I have no other surety. I have no other plea. Only Him, Him alone do I come. No works of my own. 
I come with nothing but filthy rags. But I'm made righteous, declared so because of what my Savior Jesus Christ has done. And this truth is the ground from which our freedom springs, church. Marcus Lone says this, The voice that spells forgiveness will say, You may go. You have been let off the penalty which your sin deserves. But the verdict, which means acceptance, justification, will say, You may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. See, too many of us stop with the first statement. You're forgiven. And then what that does is creates this reflexive idea in us that says, okay, I'm forgiven. Now I got to go earn it. I got to go try hard. I got to go be a good person. I got to go live by the law. No. The same word of God, the gospel, which justifies you, also says to you, come to me. My presence is with you. I am for you. I love you. God doesn't want you to go serve Him. He has served you. God doesn't want you, listen to me, to go try to live better because you're going to fail anyway. What God wants you to do is climb up in His lap and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Church, we got to stop holding up our paltry offerings to propitiate the wrath of God. And start resting in the finished work of Jesus that satisfied our God's wrath against us. That's the only hope I got. You're fighting and struggling against the sin. Let me tell you something. The Spirit of God will deliver you from that sin because He has already conquered that sin in Jesus Christ. And this is how He'll do it. Not by you saying, oh, I'm going to try harder. I tell you, I'm going to be disciplined. No. No. You do that, you'll be sinning by the end of the day. You want to know why you keep going and eating the slop? Why I keep going and eating the slop out of the pig slop? You want to know why we do that? Because we think God wants us to fix ourselves. You want victory over your sin, Christian? You want victory? Do this. The next time a thought comes in your mind to sin, just literally lay down before God and say, I can't do it. You do it. That is good news. Too many of y'all have already made a to-do list in your mind about this week. Boy, I'm going to prove to God how much I was worth Him saving me. And you won't make it to your car without offending a holy God. He'll be so disappointed in you. That's not a good word. He's never disappointed. But he, He will not be satisfied in your effort. He won't. He will see that effort and it will only make him want to help you through his spirit understand the gospel, which will mean he might say to you, okay, go ahead and try. I'll be right here when you get done. On the same ground I was standing on all the time. The blood of my son, Jesus Christ, who has caused me to no longer be angry at you. Too many of us act like abused children that think we have a heavenly father who hates us. Let me tell you, your heavenly father loves you if you are in Christ. He never, ever thinks bad thoughts about you. I know some of your eyes just got big. You said, whoa, you went too far. <laughs> I knew you'd get there. You, you became antinomian. I knew you'd throw the law off. Well, I'm in good company because that's exactly what they said about Paul. Listen to what Michael Lawrence says about what I just told you. Listen to this. Brothers and sisters, if you are justified, you understand that it's not that God has merely let you off because the penalty has been paid, but that there are no longer any grounds for him to condemn you. All those grounds have been met and exhausted by Christ. Therefore, listen to this, therefore do not live trembling on the verge of hell. Live trembling on the verge of heaven. Knowing that there is no 
longer any charge to be made against you because Christ has taken it all. The punishment for your sin has already happened and it happened to Christ. That is what? You got it. Say it louder like you believe it. It's good news. It's the only good news in the whole universe that God has satisfied himself against us. He's no longer angry. He loves us without measure. You can't plumb the bottom of it. You can't go to the top of it. East and west won't satisfy it. God's love is unconquerable. He has saved you from himself by giving himself to you in Jesus Christ. And I know some of you are saying you need to go back and listen to that sermon by Piper because he tried to tell you, Carlton, you're going too far. Well, you didn't understand, Dr. Piper, because what you did was listen to him by your instinct to want to fix yourself. But you didn't listen clearly because he told you, don't listen to my sermon until you listen to Kevin DeYoung's sermon. So I'm going to say it again this week like I said last week. Get on T4G and listen to Kevin DeYoung preach the sermon on justification and then go listen to Dr. Piper's sermon in that context. This is what, this was the great truth. What I just told you is the great truth spelled out again by the Protestant Reformation. This is what Martin Luther was so excited about. He had heard all of his life that God had to be satisfied against his sin. And the way he understood that in the Roman Catholic faith of his day and our day is that he had to pay for his sin. He had to do better. He had to work his way to God. He had to come through the sacraments. Oh yeah, I had to have faith, but, but that faith only is good is if I do all these other things. That makes me right before God. And when he came to our text, this very paragraph, he realized, that's a bunch of hogwash. That's a lie. The reaction of the Roman Catholic Church in that day and in our day was that if, this is what they said, if people begin believing what you are teaching, they'll live immoral lives. And some of you parents are saying amen to that. Don't tell my kid to stop living like he, he has to owe God something. I'm telling you, that's the only way I got to keep him from sinning. But listen to what Michael Lawrence says. But that is only a danger, that you'll live an immoral life. That's only a danger if you think morality is driven by fear and guilt. Some of you say, hold on, that, that's what it's driven by. No. That only happens if you think morality is driven by fear and guilt. Some of you need this because for 30, 40 years of your Christian life, you have lived in fear of hell and you have lived in fear of disappointing God and you have worked your fingers to the bone to make yourself better so God will love you. And what you need to know is, if you're in Christ, hear this, God loves you. You, period, end of the sentence. There's no exception. If you are clothed in the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, his wrath no longer stands against you. The ground of his wrath is consumed in the flesh of his son, and now he purely, unadulteratedly loves you. The fact is that there is another morality, the one we find in the Bible. It's not self-centered and fearful, but God-centered and hopeful. We run toward the one in whose image we are made. When our holiness is given to us in Christ, then his righteousness has been given to us as our own then we run with great hope toward this one in whom we desire to spend all our days and in whom we place all our hope. Some of you will fall short of the glory of God and you will stand before God and he will say, Christ, on the day of judgment, say, I never knew you. 
And you will say, wait a minute, Lord, I did all these things for you. I mean, I, I worked hard. I, I read my Bible. I prayed. I preached the gospel. I mean, I did everything for you. I lived my whole life for you. And Jesus will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Why? Because you think you're going to finish what God started by His Spirit, by applying the work of Jesus to your life. You think you're going to get up from that place that justification was declared over you and prove yourself to be just by your works. If you do that, you're not saved. You hear what I'm saying to you? If you're trusting at all, any, at all, the least little bit in what you have done, or if when you're tempted to doubt salvation, you run to any list of things that you have done in yourself, you don't understand the gospel. When I doubt my salvation, I offend some of you like, oh, I can't believe he's preaching and he doubts his salvation. Sometimes I do. You know why? Because I live like hell. And it makes me sick at myself. And I feel defeated. And like some of you, I think I'm going to fix it. And then, by the grace of God, the gospel comes back to my mind through the Spirit. And now I'm getting better at just sitting down before the Father and saying, I can't fix this. I can't defend this. I can't better this. I can't do anything to satisfy you because you're already satisfied. And you're satisfied because Jesus Christ, once and for all redeeming sacrifice, He ransomed me, Lord. He ransomed me from sin, death, and Satan. And He has set me free. And if He set me free, I'm free indeed. And I now know in my heart that I have hope because I want Him more than I want those things. Some of you have never prayed that prayer in your life because you've been too busy trying to prove yourself to God. He's not a bad daddy. He's not a bad father. He's a good father who knows you cannot prove yourself. He knows you cannot satisfy Him. That's why he satisfied himself with himself on your behalf. Let's move on. By his blood to receive, be received by faith. This is simple, so I won't com complicate it at all. The idea here is that we are redeemed by the propitiation that is gained only in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. We receive it only by faith. Faith does not save us. Christ alone saves us. But it's through the instrument of faith that we are saved. We are saved by believing in the finished propitiatory sacrifice which alone can, can atone for our sin. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so verse 26 comes to us just in time. It comes to us when it says this. This was to show God's righteous, righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He passed over the former sins of his people because those sins had been expiated only, rolled on into the next year, the next year, the next year through the atoning sacrifice. God, listen, did not, he did not overlook the sins of the world. God punished the sins of the world. We read about it in the Old Testament. And when those people died outside of faith in Him and His promised Messiah, they went immediately to punishment. To continue to suffer under punishment. And they suffer now, until this day. And they will suffer for all of eternity. So whose sin did He overlook, it says? Who was He forbearing with? Who did He pass over? Look what it says in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at this present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has what? Faith in Jesus. He passed over the sins of the old covenant saints 
because he was waiting on the promise of his son. And once Jesus came, he consumed their sin in the flesh of his son, consumed our sin in the flesh of his son. Every sin, by the way, every single sin you'll ever commit was laid on Christ. And he's satisfied now against the penalty due for those sins because Christ paid it. He didn't just forget it. He paid it. He paid it so it can't ever be brought up again. He paid it so that there's no such thing as double jeopardy. If Jesus paid for your sin, you cannot be condemned for your sin because the penalty has already been paid. You see what I'm saying? He did this work in Jesus alone. For the people of the Old Testament who believed in Him and the people of this day who believe in Him. All of us saved by the work of Jesus Christ alone. Here's the thing. I'm going to end right here. The just and the justifier. Listen to this. Get this picture in your mind. Go home tonight and dream about it. Wake up tomorrow and work all day thinking about it. Go to bed the next night and the next day and the next night until you die thinking about this truth. Leviticus 16 and 17 told about a ritual of, satis of satisfying God's wrath which only the high priest ever saw happen. He was the only one who ever saw it. You know what I'm saying? He was behind the veil in the tent or in the temple and he flung the blood on the seat and then he came out. And the people knew that God did a work in passing over their sin but they didn't see it. And it had to be repeated over and over again. But listen to what God did. But now. You ready? But now. He made His righteousness appear. How? In the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Who was born under the law and satisfied it. He completed all the work. And then, in Gethsemane, He said, Father, if there's another way. But if there's not, then let Your will be done. He agonized not over dying on a cross. 40,000 people died on a cross the same year as Jesus Christ. 40,000 people were crucified by Rome the exact calendar year that Jesus was crucified. Martyrs have died in the name of Jesus and never cried out, Don't let this happen to me. So, is Jesus weaker than them? No, Jesus is stronger than them because this is what he knew. He knew that when he went to the cross, unlike those other 39,999 people who would die, he wasn't just going to go die physically. He was going to bear the awful wrath of God for you. And it crushed him. It pleased God to crush him. It pleased God to put your sin on him, my sin on him, and crush him beneath the weight of his wrath. It pleased God to strike him and smite him so that you might be healed. It pleased God to do it. And so he was tried in a faulty, false trial. A mockery of justice was made. And Jesus did not open his mouth to defend himself one time. Why? Because had he opened his mouth or called down the angels from heaven... He would have been set free and you would have went to hell. But he loved you and he was willing to die for you. So he stood before an ungodly judge, judging him. Why? Because it was the will of his father. Let your will be done, not mine. And they hit him and they stroked him with the lash over and over until his bones were exposed at the whipping post. And they put a robe on him. And they let the scabs begin to form and they ripped it off. And in that naked state, they placed a cross on his shoulder and told him to crawl his way up to Gethsemane. Go on up there and die. You deserve it, they mocked. Ah, oh, he said that he could raise the temple in three days. Let him save himself. Oh, let him call down the prophets and the angels to save him. If he's really the son of God. And they tore his robes and they gambled over them. He hung in public. Because God put him forward. As a propitiation for our sin. What had been done in the veil. Century after century. God put it forward. On a hill 
on a cross. You want to know how ugly and dark your sin is? Look at the cross. You want to know how costly your salvation is? Look at the cross. You want to know what it took for God's wrath against you to be satisfied? Look at the cross. Don't turn your eyes away from Him. Look at Him as He squirms there, hung between heaven and earth, hung on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why is He cursed? Not because He was worthy of a curse, but because you and I were worthy of a curse. And He took our sin on Himself. And He drank to the bottom of the cup the wrath of the Father. On the cross, Jesus suffered the eternal punishment due for your sin. He suffered it on your behalf. What had been done behind the veil with the blood of bulls and goats, God tore the veil down and said, Look at my son. Look at my son. Look at him. Jesus said, All who look at me, like the serpent in the wilderness that was lifted up, all who look at me will be saved. Look at that cross where the propitiatory sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice, the penalty due for your sin was laid. Look at it. Look at it. Don't take your eyes off of it. You say, oh, it's uncomfortable. I can't bear to think of it. Somebody, somebody might say, I saw a video one time where they, where they showed the crucifixion of Jesus and I just, it just turned my stomach. Let me tell you something. That video... Doesn't come near. That video doesn't come near to what happened on that cross. Because the big work that was done on that cross, you can't see it with physical eyes. It was done in the spirit. It was done by Jesus Christ as he took on your sin and the wrath of God followed. It wasn't just his suffering in the flesh. It was his eternal suffering in that moment as he paid for your sin that crushed him. It crushed him. The Holy of Holies was opened up. And Christ was put forward. And the new Holy of Holies is the cross. It is the mercy seat. It is the blood. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. He is every bit of the Levitical priesthood wrapped up in one He's the one who is the sacrifice, and he's the one who gives the sacrifice. He's the one who is the blood, the death, the blood, the sacrifice, and he is the one who throws the blood against the seat of the throne of God. He is the one who both gives the sacrifice, and he is the one who receives the sacrifice. He is finished. He has done all this work that is necessary, and it is finished. It's finished, and you're free in him. You're free in Him because He is both just because He hasn't ignored the law but He's fulfilled it and the justifier because He took the penalty due for the sins of those who believe in Jesus. So the only thing left for you to know is do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in this Jesus? Do you believe in this truth? You say, well, I believed in, it's kind of like that. I mean, what I've been believing, no, 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 that won't do. Do you believe in this unadulterated biblical gospel? Because if you don't, if you do not, then you are not saved. Why? Because though you may have come in knowing a kind of gospel that, had, that, that, that was good, you came in and heard the truth of the gospel and you say, I reject that. I don't believe that. Your rejection proves the Spirit of God is not in you. If the Spirit of God is in you and you hear these truths, you can't help but rejoice in Him. You can't help but sing praise to His great name. You can't help but dance. I know you Baptists out there. Dance. Get excited. Overflowing with joy. And so, in response to this sermon, we're going to sing. We sang some loud songs today. And they were the gospel songs, man. They were beautiful. 
weren't they? Beautiful, singing the same truth. You say, man, we were singing what you were just preaching. That's because they're biblical. <laughs> we, were, we were getting ready for what we heard. But listen, now that you've heard it and now that you've sung it, listen, you ought to sing louder. We're going to sing Lamb of God. So church, uh, stand with us. Come on up, praise team. And I'm going to pray for us. Father, as we prepare to sing back praise to your great and holy name, we ask God that we would be found believing, simply believing, clinging in faith to the one who is the satisfaction for our sin, the one who is the blood spread over the mercy seat, the one who is the mercy seat, the one who has extended to us not just the cleansing of our sin, but the satisfaction of your wrath. We are forgiven and we are accepted, Lord, in you and you alone. Help us to sing like that is the truth of our life. It's in your name.